Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. So here we are in the final week of this epically terrible, horrible, no good, very bad year, with Christmas and Hanukkah behind us, Kwanzaa still underway, and New Year's Day looming alluringly, tantalizingly, just ahead on the horizon. And this podcast crack team of producers, engineers, technicians, bookers, researchers, absinthe quaffers, ayahuasca gobblers, in-and-out burger aficionados, Jenga masters, belly button lint pickers, and the kid who's responsible for making sure that the host bong water is always as pure as a mountain stream. All of us here on Team Hell and High Water, we faced an existential challenge. How on earth were we ever going to give you, our dear and faithful listeners, a final episode of the pod for 2020 that seemed adequate to the moment? And I don't mind telling you, we thought and we thought and we thought and we thought we thought so hard, at least two of us sprained something. And for a good long time, we were stumped. And then suddenly, lightning struck, singeing the beard of our executive producer, Christian Fidel Castro Russell, but also having a transformative effect on the contents of his head. Normally, Fidel's brain is basically a chaotic jumble of aperçus from Mao's Little Red Book and Marx's Das Kapital, lengthy soliloquies uncorked by Steve Schmidt, the filthiest limericks you could possibly imagine, and the lifetime stats in terms of both goals on the field and kilos of cocaine off the field scored by the late, great Diego Maradona. But now, Fidel was seized with an idea about what we should do for this last episode of Hell and High Water for 2020. Two words, Fidel cried out. Tenacious D. To which the only sensible reply came from yours truly. Two more words, said I. Fuck yes. And just like that, here they are. The genius madmen behind the genius supergroup Tenacious D actor, singer, and all-around comedic superhero, Jack Black. The state of our union is rescued because there is a shining beacon of hope by the name of Joe Biden. Let's do this. And Jack's compadre, the musician, actor, and grade-A political junkie, Kyle Gass. The state of the transition is disgraceful. It's unprecedented that Don's not turned over the keys when he's supposed to. And I think that um, it's irresponsible. It's un-American, and uh, it's the one thing we hold dear is the peaceful transference of power. And it makes us great. Don't make us not great, Don. If you have to ask who or what Tenacious D is or are, it is time to rethink your life priorities. Founded in 1994 by Jack and Kyle, six years before Jack's breakthrough role in High Fidelity sent him into Hollywood orbit with a string of hits including Shallow Hal, School of Rock, Nacho Libre, Tropic Thunder, and the Kung Fu Panda franchise, when he and Kyle were just a couple of unknown members of the actors gang in LA, Tenacious D is a musical duo who specialize in fusing absurdist, profane, weed-enhanced comedy with both acoustic and heavy metal rock and roll. Some critics describe Tenacious D's music as mock rock. Others see them as the spiritual descendants of Spinal Tap, and they have long referred to themselves as the court jesters of rock. But while their lyrics and affect are thick with satire, Tenacious D has always possessed serious musical chops. How serious, you ask? Serious enough that when Jack and Kyle first expanded Tenacious D into a full band for their eponymous debut album, they were joined by Dave Grohl on drums, Paige McConnell of Fish on keyboards, and Warren Fitzgerald of The Vandals on guitar. When the album came out in 2001, it went platinum, as did their 2003 live video album, The Complete Masterworks, and the 2006 soundtrack to their feature film debut, Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny. Eight years later, their cover of The Last in Line, a song by former Black Sabbath frontman Ronnie James Dio, 
won Tenacious D a Grammy Award for Best Heavy Metal Performance. So, musical cred, check. And funny as fuck, check. But it wasn't until the election of Donald Trump that Tenacious D turned political. I mean, sure, they had dabbled in activism before 2016, sets of benefits for John Kerry and Barack Obama, supporting the legalization of pot and encouraging voter registration, boycotting gigs in Arizona over harsh anti-immigration laws. But with Trump in the White House, Jack and Kyle got to work on a full-scale protest project, a 21-track album and six-episode South Park-style animated YouTube series, and a brand new graphic novel, all called Tenacious D Post-Apocalypto. That title alone would have been enough for me to want them on Hell and High Water. But then something even more amazing happened. In lieu of a swing state get-out-the-vote tour they had been planning for this fall that COVID made impossible, Jack and Kyle put together a cover version of the song Time Warp from the Rocky Horror Picture Show, released the video on YouTube, and the thing went wildly viral, due in part to the fact that the song kicks ass, and in part to the eclectic roster of celebrities they recruited to sing along. Eric Andre, George Takei, Lana Glazer, Jamie Lee Curtis, John Waters, Karen O, King Princess, Phoebe Bridgers, Reggie Watts, Sarah Silverman, Susan Sarandon, plus Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren, and, well, me. At the time, I hadn't the faintest clue why in God's name Jack and Kyle would have ever decided to include me, but I was beyond psyched when it all went down, and you know what? I still am. So that's one thing I wanted to discuss with Tenacious D, along with their origin story, post-apocalypto, and the other crazy viral TikTok videos that Jack has cranked out during our COVID nightmare, wearing a beard, a cape, a Stetson, a mask, and not very much else. So if you are not intrigued by this episode by now, and if it's not obvious why Fidel's two-word declaration wasn't clearly spot on, then once again, you need to reassess your life priorities. But if you're into it, then buckle up for a truly delightful excursion into the wacky and wonderful world of Tenacious D on this final episode of the year on Hell and High Water. It's astounding. Time is fleeting. Madness takes its toll. But listen closely. Not for very much longer. I've got to keep control. Here with Tenacious D on Hell and High Water. It's great to have you guys here, Kyle Gass and the Jack Black. This podcast is going to be weird because you guys are both really fucking weird, but also because I'm going to spend a ridiculous amount of time talking about the time warp. So it's great to have you guys here. Hi. How are Hi. you? Hey. Great to be here. <laughs> Honored. I have to take off yeah. my glasses because just that little bit of time warp got my my uh, my lens steamed up. Oh my God. Yeah, I got it. It works every time. So I'm going to switch to my readers. <laughs> So here's my my thing. First of all, I want to say I'm so psyched to have you guys on here. We're going to talk about Tenacious D in some detail as we get a little deeper into this podcast, but I just want to start off by saying my wife is named Diana, and she was a huge Jack Black fan even before Tenacious D started. But when Tenacious D started, and my wife, who's very tenacious, 
when the band got formed, she was like, this is my band. These are my guys. <laughs> wow. I don't even give a shit what they sound like. Tenacious D is my jam. And it has you know, been true ever since. Now my glasses, now my second pair of glasses are getting steamy. <laughs> now, let me, let me ask you a question about Diana, because Tenacious D goes back almost to the beginning of my career. But if she liked me before Tenacious D, that means she must have seen my first film, Bob Roberts. Oh, I didn't want to get into the calendar. Yeah, a political satire that I uh, did back in 91. Ahead of its time. Yes, with Tim Robbins. And I will tell you that one of the things that this will give you what such a dork I am is that for women I used to date, I would make them watch Bob Roberts. And if they didn't dig it, they didn't make the cut in terms of who I would Whoa. stick around with. So nice. it's, it's a screening mechanism. I've for heard me. we've been a screening mechanism for some dudes. Oh, yeah. If you don't like it, if you're not down with me. I remember Flanning. He said, listen, call off the engagement. That's it. It's over. So I want to talk about Time Warp just to start us off here. And there's a lot to say about it. I'm unusually interested in this, not just because you guys were nice enough to ask me to be in it, but in this election cycle where there was a lot of activity, a lot of energy, a lot of, you know, stuff going on, but where there wasn't the thing that usually a campaign ends with, which is like, here's Bruce Springsteen playing for Barack Obama. And here's, you know, so-and-so playing for John Kerry and like, you know, big events. I remember going to those last week of the campaign, you're out and you're with at the Springsteen show in Ohio with Kerry or Obama or whatever. None of that stuff happened because of COVID, right? So instead we had Time Warp, which when it came out, it went viral really fast. Like everybody was jamming to it and it was being passed around in people's text messages, like for a couple days where it was like everywhere fast. So I want to just talk about it because of its virality and how much people were rocking out to it. Like, tell me the story of how you got to that. Not just why Rocky Horror, why this song is a political song, why like for an election cycle, like what just I I don't get I've read everything written about it, but I don't understand the the genesis. John, it's interesting that you said you were waiting for the Springsteen moment because Jack was telling me that. Like, where is, where the, you know, where the, the artists coming out is strong, the passion. And it did seem like there was a big opening. It seems like that generation just moved into talk show hosts and, <laughs> you know, MSNBC pundits took up the mantle of the, hey, let's rally the resistance. Weird, because that used to be for the rockers and the artists and the musicians. Richie Havens. You know what was kind of a, the first time we did like a, a fundraiser where we're like, hey, let's do something that's to try to help the world. Save, <laughs> we've been saving the world for a little while now. It was after the the horrible tsunami back, was that like 10 years ago? No, it was longer. Yeah, actually it was around then. It was in 2004. And, uh, and we were able, just because we were saying, hey, let's raise some money for Red Cross and let's send some help to the tsunami victims and let's call a bunch of our friends and see if they'll jump in with us and do a concert to raise money. And everyone came through that usually would have nothing to do with us. Like we had Beck, we had, uh, who, who'd we have cage on the bill? We had Josh Homme and we had Will Ferrell and Will Ferrell. And we had the Pearl Jam yeah, guy, Pearl Eddie Jam. Better jumped in. It was like, these people would not usually answer the phone but because it was for a good cause. All of a sudden we were partying with these legends and no, and we raised a bunch of money and it was a great feeling. And we could have been chasing the dragon ever since. It's like, you know, every time there's an opportunity to save the world, we send up the, the D signal in the sky. And that's a pretty good lineup. So this was a time when it was like, okay, if ever there was a time to save the world, it's when this orange menaces. Yeah. The Democracy was in the balance. But yeah. why, but why time warp? Right. Honestly, it was our manager, Michelle Fleischley, because of the jump to the left. Well, you know what? I was inspired also by 
You know that uh, thing that Jason Reitman just did recently where he oh, got yeah. all the celebrities to do the at-home pandemic version of Princess Bride. Right. And got right. all of Hollywood to buy in and, you know, film in their backyards and their basements and, and make their own costumes. I was like, how the hell? The genius of it was that he had this idea. Wouldn't it be fun? And I'm telling you what you will have to do. And that's how you get people to do it. If you have something fun and you're not saying, hey, whatever you want to do, just you, you send us some content and whatever you want. You think that's going to be the thing that gets everyone to come. And no, you got to focus to do that. No. So you focus them on something fun. So then Michelle Fleischley was like, you know, it would be fun. Uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. And for a minute, we were thinking we were going to do a whole production of Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, how's that going to work? And everyone would do their stay-home version of a scene. And then we're like, that's like, not, not going to make a whole movie. No. Like Jason Reitman, that's a huge pain in the ass. And then we were like, what's the best part of Rocky Horror Picture Show? It's Time Warp. Mm -hmm. That song is hands down like... That's kind of the hit, yeah. One of the great songs in motion picture and, rock and well, roll history. So here's the thing, right? I get this call from... I don't know, someone saying, do you want to be in this time warp thing? And I was like, fuck yeah, I want to be in this thing. Like, sure, no problem. Like, I asked a couple of people, you guys think this is a good idea? And everybody's like, fuck yeah, you should be in this thing. So uh, wait, let's just play that sight, you guys. I want to hear myself. It's just a jump to the left. It's just a jump to the left. It's just a jump to the left. Put your hands on your hips. Put your hands on your hips. Put your hands on your hips. So that's Heilman at the end there with the hands on your hips thing. And also Groot with John Waters, one of my he absolute fucking heroes in the world. I, I, Man, John Waters, alternative filmmaker from Baltimore. I wrote a, a magazine piece about John Waters when I was in college. Wow. And, you know, all divine, all of the stuff he made. It's one of my heroes. I love that guy. And Elizabeth Warren comes right between John Waters and me. So anyway, so you guys said, hey, would you guys do this thing? I said, sure. So I'm on the road at that point making the circus and I'm sitting with my crew that I travel around with for 13 weeks of making our show on Showtime. And these kids, we started talking about Rocky Horror and I said, you know, it's weird. First of all, the songs kick ass, like throughout the whole show. They're great songs. They are fantastic. Time Warp's a great song, but so is the, the meatloaf cut in there and the song We Transvestite. Sweet Transvestite. Are Don't great songs. Touch me. Tim mm -hmm. Curry was a genius, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Stole the show. The thing that made Rocky Horror famous was this element of audience participation, right? People would go there, it was the midnight show, and there had evolved over the relatively brief period between when the movie was released in 1975 and, you know, say by the early 80s when this thing had become a cult phenomenon, there was a whole routine that had been developed of audience participation. Everybody in the movie theater had seen That's the movie a whole true. bunch of times That's very true. and there was like a script not like literally a script handed out but people knew when they were supposed to yell out certain things in the when you read certain moments in the movie so the whole experience was premised on audience participation that was part of what made it really fun and then there was the fact that the audience was really different from any other kind of audience you'd ever seen a movie with you know if you were like me a suburban kid in southern california growing up in the late 70s, early 80s, this was the first time that you would have seen a bunch of people who were cross-dressing, who were gender fluid, all in one place, kind of vividly letting their freak flag fly in, you know, to use the cliche, right? 
in an awful lot of suburban communities all across the country, red states, blue states, all over, there was a midnight showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show by the early 1980s. And if you were a teenager, pre-teenager, young teenager growing up at that time and you went to one of those, it was probably the first time you'd seen anything like that. And here's the deal why I think it was in a kind of inspiring sort of transformative experience for me and a lot of other people. You know, if you had no particular predisposition towards those communities, you walked in the door and were like, well, this isn't threatening. This isn't scary. This is warm and welcoming and embracing and fun and witty and a little profane and experimental. And and people were having a great time. And part of why I was so psyched when you guys asked, you know, I reached out and asked me to take part in this thing was like, this movie actually meant a lot to me at that age. Were you like that? You know, we're all basically about the same age. Did you go to Rocky Horror when you were in your early teens? Did you have those kind of experiences? Did this movie mean as much to you as it did to me and a bunch of other people? Or were you just kind of like, this is a really fucking great song. Let's do this. Well, for some wrinkle in time, I was in New York in 77, the summer of Sam as a domestic exchange student. And that was the first time I saw Rocky Horror. So I think it, I don't know if it was one of the first times it was getting when the cult thing sort of started. I don't know if it was transformative, but it was definitely something I'll never forget. I've never been to, I was 17 and it was kind of knocking my socks off. I went with my big sister, Rachel Siegel, proud lesbian and part of the LGBTQ community at that time didn't have the letters. I don't know why they let uh, little kids into the theater because it's, it's a raunchy, fun it ride. Is. But I loved it. <laughs> so, and everyone in the, the sense of community in yes. that room was a yeah. fucking party. Right. I felt the energy and right. it definitely affected me and changed me. Yeah. I mean, it does seem fitting uh, to have the time warp for this moment, right? Yeah. Because it really is a, like a rallying cry for the disenfranchised, the people that feel left out. And it was a perfect calling card for these times <laughs> with the jump to the left. It was like, what? It fits right. right in right now. So a jump to the left and not a step to the right. People, yeah, you know, I heard <laughs> you say that. So were you surprised at how many people you were able to get doing it? Because the list of people who ended up doing it was pretty impressive. Not just, you know, you got a lot of cool people involved from your world. John Waters was actually the first to really? send the tape yeah. in. And there's always that moment of like, no one's going to send in anything. It's like the first one at the party that comes to your party. You're sure nobody when you invite ah, people to yeah and then your Halloween you party and no one shows yeah the zero to one was really good and then they started trickling it you know actually John your first one do you remember the it was it was kind of far away yeah 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 you were very close to being four. cut and yeah, thanks thank God for me and Oprah didn't come through uh, so you got the slot the second one worked okay though right I mean <laughs> it, it was, was not great. bad oh my God and as soon as I saw the jazz hands I yeah. was like that's right yeah. on the nuggets but you guys got like Phoebe Bridgers and Karen O and King Princess and all these people who are super you know cool and Sarah Silverman <laughs> and all of your buddies right but yeah. then to get Elizabeth Warren and was, Pete yeah. Buttigieg um, that was the gold that was, was that gold. were you shocked that those yes. two decided to participate I was, I was shocked at those two because I thought if they did a little bit of research on Tenacious D, they might have been a little more careful of their brand. <laughs> they don't want to go down, you know, in the yeah, ship. Because uh, <laughs> uh, we, we, we work blue. Let's put it that way. But, uh, but I was really stoked because I, I love them both. Big fans of Mayor Pete. I mean, yeah, big fans of both, but Mayor Pete. 
Buttigieg, Kyle, you you turned me on to Mayor Pete. I didn't know about Buttigieg until I, I was- said, "Look, this guy's always going to be the smartest guy in the room, right here." He always was the smartest guy in the room, and uh, and I was always pulling for uh, Elizabeth Warren. So, like, we got our two big heroes, and uh, I have to give uh, credit. Kyle called it for uh, for uh, John Heilman, and um, I was like, "Let me check out his work." And once again, Kyle called it, you are a badass. And you were one of the first names that came up when we were like, okay, so we'll go for Neil Young. Uh, we'll go for, and Kyle was like, John Holland. <laughs> what, who? Oh, okay. My hero. And then we were hero. like, yeah, it did, it did make sense because you are on the front lines and kicking ass. And- are, you the, are you representing all pundits too? I, do we have any other? Well, I don't think that, I certainly don't think I do, but I will say when I asked who was invited, I was a little surprised that there were all these cool people, you know, people way cooler than me. And I'm like, Reggie Watts is on this thing. And like, you know, yeah. Eric Andre and Alana Glazer, all these people. And I'm like, okay, these people are really cool. And then there's a couple of former Democratic candidates who might be like yeah. cabinet secretaries if Biden wins. And I'm like, so who else is in from my business? And they're like, no, no, you're the only one. And I was like, I'm the only one? Well, now now I really want to be on this fucking yeah. thing. I want to end on the, this time warp discussion just by asking you guys. Like, So it comes out. And like I said, I was, I mean, I was psyched that it got so much. It got, you know, millions of people have watched it. It was all over the place. And I just had a ambient sense of it because everyone was texting me. People I hadn't talked to in a long time were like, <laughs> man, you're in this fucking video. It's really cool. I'm like, did you know you're in this video? Yeah, I know I'm in the video. Thanks. Um, but like it, it spread like I have not been part of very many viral things where it really like was like genuine virality. Were you guys surprised by how fast, how much it spread like wildfire and the kind of immediate reaction to it? I wasn't surprised as much as just satisfied because that I mean, it was mission accomplished. Yeah, That's yeah. what we were going for when yeah. we were doing it and it worked and we were like, yes. It was designed to work. I mean, like we had a publicist for, I mean, we had someone working, sure. working the phones and stuff. Yeah. And we had a plan on the release. It wasn't catch as catch can. It was, yeah. but, but you know, the thing is, the thing is with viral things though, is you can have all the publicists in the world trying to shell shit. And if it's right. not really, if it's not really hooky and really catchy and doesn't hit the moment, right. It doesn't matter how many publicists you have on it. It's you can't force viral, right? Either it hits or it doesn't. That's true. That's true. And I will say, though, that it came together kind of fast from the moment that we recorded it to the moment that we had all the cameos. And it, it was only I feel like it was only about a week. We got that together fast. I think and so many good things happen fast and organic and in the moment. It was fast. And I got to say, actually, to your point, I will say Tim Curry and the rest of the cast or some portion of the cast of Rocky Horror did Around the same time your guys' thing came out, they did a Zoom, one of these things, for the Wisconsin Democratic Party, where they did the whole Rocky Horror Picture Show right around the same time. And I think it got, obviously got way less attention than your Time Warp did, but they performed the whole thing. It had like Seth Green in it and Rosario Dawson and some various people who did the whole thing. But Tim Curry was in it. And I got to say, I think Tim Curry is a genius. And Richard O'Brien, your imitation of Richard O'Brien, Jack, very strong. Very, very strong. You you look a little less, less like a heroin addict than he did yeah. in that movie. A little less. But it was, man, you shredded those vocals, boy. Yeah. Well, it was a little out of my range, which is uh, that leads to the strong uh, vocal. Sometimes if it's a little too high, you have to. You got to reach. You gotta. Yeah, it's a good day. I just want to know with you guys, before we go to break, how much do you think that the time warp actually just was what won it for Biden? When I think about what was decisive in the final weeks of the campaign, well, I'm going to write the book margin. about this and I'm going to say time warp was like one of the key factors. 
Is that the name of the book? John, Time Warp? <laughs> Could be. That's crazy. Could, Is it happening here? Could be. Write a word, get a Jump third. Jump to the left. The Tenacious D story. Look, this is embarrassing to admit, but that was part of our calculation was like, okay, if we rock hard enough, we can save the world once that's always our, our motivation. That's, I know. And that's then in our mind, we're thinking in the back of our mind while we're making time warp the video, if Biden wins, people are going to point to us and then there might be a ticker tape parade just for Tenacious D for saving the world. Now, looking back on it, I don't think we get as much credit as like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who threw a, a, a one minute post up on oh. Instagram, which it shackles my hackles a little bit that he can swoop in, give the endorsement to Biden, and now he can do a victory lap and take credit. But that's not what this is about, right, Cage? No, no. We're all on the same team. Shackles his hackles. Um, all right, we're going to take a break and play some advertisements, and then we'll come back with the members of Tenacious D here on Hell and High Water. What was I thinking? All this rage, it's the end of the world. Spreading my hatred, I must sound insane to every boy and every girl. Colors are the thing that make the world better. I've been seeing things in black and white. If we work together, Um, that uh, was uh, Tenacious D from their most recent album, Post Apocalypto, which we're going to talk about here. And that song is called Colors, and it is sung by, uh, ostensibly, Donald Trump Jr. I mean, it's sung right. the, the character, character and the yes. the character is Donald Trump, sung by Jack Black, of course, but but by it's Donald the Trump song Jr. We wish he would sing. Right. It's kind of like the concession uh, speech we wish that his father would would. would What's strange though, because we're kind of leading. That was like I think that's our lead single. If there was one. Well, it was definitely the message of the whole the rock opera. It's Don Jr. basically realizing that he's lived a terrible, immoral, horrible life and that he's like actually wants to promote the United Colors of Benetton, basically. It's like that's what that that's, <laughs> that's what that it. is, right? It's the epiphany <laughs> moment for a soulless, heartless scumbag who suddenly looks yeah. up and goes, Wait, I regret it all. Let me tell you yeah. what I really feel, right? Well, he's destroyed the world in our post apocalyptic warning rock opera. As we've apprehended him and stopped him and saved the world, he says, wait, before you let me die, uh, let, and he sings this song to us to show that he's seen the light and he's come around and he's no longer going to be a purveyor of evil, darkness. <laughs> Morally and, uh, bankrupt. But it's all a ruse. In the end, he was just singing that song to, to make us think he was turning over a new leaf, but really it, he was, it was part of his master plan to still destroy us the so i want to get to uh post-apocalypto in a minute because it's like your most political thing and we're going to talk about it but before we do that i want to just talk about the d you guys have become in some ways in some circles totally iconic i mean there's part of me that thinks you guys are a really a serious band you've won a grammy right you know like you're a, a real band and another part of you there's like a little bit of a, a spinal tap flavor to what you guys have been have done right there's a comedic kind of element to it so there's oh the jack's got the grammy he's showing it what is that doing I'm there? We're sitting precariously on the left. That's crazy. Wanna... What are the odds? What are, Jack even... keeps that with him at all times. Um, My, I want to make it into like a gold rope. That's sort of like a whip it out moment right there from Jack Black. But just walk walk our listeners through a little bit of the story of how this coupling came to be 
and and just and talk about the nature of this project. Well, our story begins way back in 1986. Um, I was a young theater nerd in high school, and I heard about this theater troupe, The Actors Gang, which was uh, led by Tim Robbins. It was like a political activist theater group, and they they had this uh, vibe and this reputation, just being cool and radical oh, and. They were like the chili pepper. You you wanted to be like, in there. You want to be a, a an actor's gang member if you were a young actor in L.A. And I went and saw a production of uh, Freaks. That was the name of the play. And Kyle was in there. And uh, it was mind-blowing. And uh, the, what was the other one? Carnage. Carnage, um, yeah. And I just wanted to be in there so badly. And Kyle didn't know that I existed. But I was like kind of a, a groupie, if you will, <laughs> of, uh, of the actor's gang. Yeah. We I didn't, didn't have sex with them. I didn't, didn't get backstage with uh, sexual favors, but yeah. I was really into the actors gang. And we had a mutual friend named Bob White. And I went over to, to Bob's house one time and uh, Kyle was there serenading a, a gorgeous actress, uh, Cynthia Ettinger. <laughs> and um, he didn't still didn't know that I existed. It actually took a few years before Kyle knew that I existed. I got into the actors gang production uh, of a show called The Big Show, and I started to write some music for that play, and I think that's the first time I was on his radar, not as a friend, as a mm. foe. Uh, as a rival. We started as off as rivals. Yeah, I was kind of the music guy in the theater company, and this young kid with some crazy chops was- And uh, there's some like Edinburgh piece of this, right? That was kind of our bonding thing. We, yeah, we went- 89. 89, Edinburgh uh, Festival. Edinburgh Theater Festival. The Actors Gang takes the troupe over there. We climbed Arthur's seat. Remember that night we got drunk and climbed uh, yeah. to the top of that mountain? Yes. And uh, we had a great show there in Edinburgh, Scotland. If any uh, actors out there have never been, make that your mecca. Put that on your bucket list because it was an incredible experience. The whole city, theater, night and day, 24 hours a day, and did like every like barbershop and, and pub turns into a theater. But anyway, then we took the show to New York and got the worst review I've ever read in the New York Times by Frank Rich just tore us a new one. And it was such a horrible, mean review mm -hmm. that it stopped being a bad review. To me, it turned into a hilarious review because it was like, wow, this is like a badge of honor now. It's because it's like the worst yeah. review ever written. And Frank's and, uh, a good writer. It became, yeah, it became sort of a, a rallying cry. And we had a great run there at the Joseph Papp Public Theater. But from that experience, yeah. Kyle at some point said, maybe this kid's all right. And you took me under it your It was wing. a classic, can't beat him, join him. I knew I was up against some some pretty serious talent. I was like, I got I to gotta get with this kid. This kid looks like money. So you were just looking like an idol maker. You were going to yes. shape me. Yeah. Yes. But in my mind, I had found a best friend. I like that. <laughs> I didn't know ulterior motive. I like that. I like we, the notion of Kyle's basically playing the Simon Cowell here. He sees I, Jack Black and says, "You know what? I'm the Dean Martin, and Jack is the Jerry Lewis." Well, that's a good. I like that. I like that's a good. That's a good it's reference. Like, who's this? Who's this funny kid? I like the notion that Kyle saw something in Jack before the rest of the world even did, because we're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna talk about High Fidelity momentarily, which is a movie that changed my life. A book Nick Hornby, someone I know, wrote that book. But we'll get there because 2000 is a big year for you guys because that movie comes out and you guys sign with Epic. But at some point early, you're like Kyle, like saw it. He saw the spark. He said, "Jack Black, this guy's gonna be big. I can make him a star. He can ride on my coattails. Let's go." 
<laughs> right. Uh, the truth is that Jack was, he was the thing. And there was not a competition, but you were pretty sought after pretty early. I was not the only suitor. Well, I had a little heat off of uh, Bob Roberts, mm-hmm. but I didn't really have the career going until Tenacious D. Mm-hmm. But, but really, guys- it, it, I mean, I had like little gigs, but throughout the 90s, we smoked a ton of weed and just yeah. worked on our craft. You know that thing they say about the 10,000 hours to become yeah. a, a true master, yeah. the way the Beatles did in Germany? That's what we did yeah. in Kyle's apartment. We called it the cockroach because <laughs> it was a shithole. Back when you could be bad because uh, obviously pre-internet and everything. And, and it took us 10,000 hours to write one song. Well, that's, what, that's, that's what the okay. weed does. That's, that's like 10,000 hours of being stoned. You get, you get it really good, but 10,000 hours and we got one song written because we were really fucking it's high from down. 1994 to 2000. Yeah. You know, Spinal Tap was 84. And I have to say that was kind of a very, uh, it's kind of like knew what I wanted to do after that. I wanted to do the music with the funny somehow. And I always loved duos as well. I'm like your Simon and Garfunkels and your Everly Brothers and the like. What about your Smothers Brothers, Cage? Like the Smothers Brothers? Don't go to sleep on the Smo, bro. I won't. They were musical. Sure. That was, if we're talking about post-apocalypto and time warp, they were doing the comedy, music, and politics. I think first. I don't know if anyone who really did it like those two did. We're showing our age here. We admit that we know the Smothers Brothers. Anybody under 50 is like, the Smothers Brothers? (laughs) What the fuck is that? They were an essential voice during the Vietnam era. Oh Am I gosh, right, Cage? Of course, of course, of course. I was there. I was watching as a kid. I'm so old. I watched the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. That's how old I am. Yeah, yeah. it's true. So you guys, um, you sign a record deal with Epic Records. It's now, but 2000. first we do the HBO show. The um, HBO show, right. Late 90s. It was kind of right? huge. And it was HBO, weird that we didn't have a record. Because Bob Odenkirk and David Cross of Mr. Show fame. They were the trailblazers of the alternative comedy scene. Because in Seattle, you had alternative rock with Nirvana burgeoning. And in Hollywood, you had Mr. Show. Mm-hmm. That were like the Nirvana of, of comedy at, at the time, in my mind. Yeah, there was kind of a movement. It was a destination. It, and anytime Mr. Show was taping, everyone would come to watch yeah. and be li- in the live audience. Because it was, you could feel it, the electric energy. Now people don't really know and remember the power of Mr. Show. But at the time, it was like, holy shit, these guys are the next, you know, Monty Python. Odenkirk, although, of course, people do just because of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. You know, that's the most amazing. Odenkirk has a fucking has a like that's a different kind of currency. What an amazing career that guy's had. Yeah. But before that's become who he is. And it's like, wait, I don't know. That's not. No, he's the the writer, funny producer guy. But yeah, Better Call Saul is pretty damn entertaining. And a lot of his things that he's done. But superstar. So we were playing a little gig in a downtown bar called Al's Bar. Friend of ours, Steve Moore Marco of the Abe Lincoln story asked us if we wanted to open for them. And we're like, yeah, we only have one song. We have a tribute. We'd love to play it. And we played our one song. I think there are like 12 drunken people in the audience. And in my memory banks, we just blew the lid off of that bar. But anyway, one of the 12 people in the audience was David Cross. And he talked to us after. He's like, hey, I love that song. Do you guys want to open for uh, Mr. Show? And we're like, who? Uh, Yeah. Because we're taking all offers right now. And, and uh, we're like, sure, an opportunity. Someone wants us to play anywhere? Yes. And uh, 
we went and opened for Mr. Show live at, at a theater in Santa Monica. And we realized, oh, these guys are actually happening. This is like a real thing. And then it wasn't long after that that they said, hey, we want to produce a Tenacious D. Well, we were going to be on their show first off. At HBO. And we we're like, hell yeah, this is blowing up. So we got to credit Bob and David for kind of discovering Tenacious D. They did. And giving us our big break. So again, I, I go back to, you know, you signed the record deal with Epic, right? The first studio album comes, that's 2000. The, the studio record, Tenacious D, comes out in 2001. You guys have uh, Pick of Destiny in 2006. You win the Grammy in 2015. This is like a, you know, a, a slow build, right? A little bit of like, you know, cult status. Jack's movie career is taken off and he's getting all kinds of love and all kinds of fame. But this thing has never been far from you guys, right? This has always been, like, I think of people like Jack's famous and he's a movie star. And people like, oh, Tenacious D. But the more you dive into it, you guys have been really kind of like, you know, doing it step by step. You know, the Grammy in 2015 is really 20 years after when you started the band and you finally like achieved the pinnacle. And Jack can now carry that statuette around with him everywhere. I know he does. It's funny how you can really always talk shit about the Grammys and how they're the most inaccurate of all the award shows. And award shows are dumb to begin with. But once you win one. Yeah. For some reason, it goes first in your bio. Jack is tongue kissing the Grammy right now. On the, what? Oh my look at him. God! Look at he's got his tongue, he's got his into tongue the in the gramophone. Yeah, come on! It's the it's our only piece of the egot. Yeah. I, I think we can get a Tony though. How hard could that be? Now that Frank Rich isn't doing isn't doing theater criticism, yeah. you guys might be to do better on Broadway than the last time. What do you think, post apocalypto? Well, that's the question. Musical. I want to get to post apocalypto. I, I want to hear about it because I, I just went through a very quick version of the Tenacious D career. No one would have said that you guys were a political group until Trump gets elected, right? And again, the way I understand this story is Trump gets elected and you guys decide you're going to do a political project, which becomes a series of YouTube shorts that ultimately get knitted together in a kind of movie. It's a, an album. It's a graphic novel now, right? So in the last couple of years, the post-apocalypto has been the center of your creative output and it's very political and, and I think Trump inspired. So I, I would love you guys to just talk a little bit about how Trump's election changed your direction because you well, haven't really done anything political. You know, the truth is, this is our first political work. You know, we've, we'd never done any, any political music or, or content before, but we have supported campaigns. Like yeah, yeah, we yeah. did a concert to benefit John Kerry. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, we had never written any songs directly pointed towards politics because it never felt like genuine or, or authentic to do it that seemed like our brand no it just is it seemed like it would be boring to anyone yeah we're singing about politics now leave that to you know the pearl jams a, a little more earnest kind of right. musician but this time it was like holy shit this could really be the end of civilization it was the DEFCON 5. this is trump you mean yeah. trump's election <laughs> Yes, when Trump gets elected, because it's all a joke until he wins. Well, the escalator first, I mean. Well, the escalator, he was a joke. And all the comedians and all the pundits were celebrating because I was like, we get a clown to point at and laugh at for, you know, the whole run up to the election. I remember when when Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert were, were celebrating, jumping up and down like, yes, nothing could provide us more material and gold than this clown trotting out and being a dumbass for nine months we're gonna be <laughs> we're gonna be set with our material 
and it was hilarious until it wasn't. And then once he won, it's all fun and games until someone gets elected. And uh, yeah, and he won with a you know we all know it was the the incredible terrifying racism and support of it, and then and the and cheating denial of racism. Like no, I'm the least racist in the in the world. So yeah, it was time for us to say. Fuck the brand. Let's do something to yeah. just speak out. You know what it is? At a certain point, you go, this is going to sound a little dramatic, but you think about Nazi Germany, and you think about the shame that that country had to go through for decades after that whole episode and dark chapter of world history, and you think, did anyone in Germany even try to fucking stop? And yes, and the people that did speak out and say, this guy's an asshole. Don't put me with this guy. Like Bertolt Brecht is a playwright. Not to compare us to Bertolt Brecht. The guy's a genius. <laughs> That's but usually what I think of we, when I think about Tenacious D. Bertolt Brecht is the first thing that comes to mind. Yes. That's always what I'm thinking. We have Brechtian elements yeah. to our yeah. theater in the rough. But our alienation devices. The point is, if there's a piece of shit running your country, let your voice be heard. Say something. Do something so that you know, your, your kids and your grandkids can say, yeah, my parents had nothing to do with that regime. In, in case you want to go fucking live in another part of the world someday, you want to be able to say, hey, don't confuse me with those fucking QAnon. Yeah, that's, fucking yeah where were you? What were you doing? So I, I saw this, you know, when I, when Postpocalypto comes out, I, I'm just trying to think about how to describe what you guys did. You know, you rewrote it, directed it, you drew it voice acted. It's an animated thing about a post-apocalyptic landscape. You know, hell and high water, this podcast kind of sprung out of this notion that in 2020, America felt like really was end times, you know, between the pandemic and the politics and the Trump and the racial justice protests and sometimes riots and all the shit in the recession that this felt like, like more than ever in, in my lifetime, like the end could be nigh, right? You know, people were like, have been in this dark apocalyptic moment. And that's why when I saw post apocalypto, I was like, oh, these guys are in sync with the podcast, right? Hell and high water. <laughs> you know, it's like we're not just hell or high water here. We're hell and high water here. And so there's some, yeah, sh I noticed some that. shit's yeah. going on, right? And so you guys have this thing. It's like, you know, a little Mad Max. It's like a little matrixy. It's got kind of a post global warming, post nuclear war, uh, penis-shaped monsters and cave women and space colonists and Nazis and Klansmen and Donald Trump Jr. It's everything you need. <laughs> to really get a picture of what a post-apocalyptic landscape would look like. You guys went a little fucking bonkers on this thing, but it's pretty compelling. Well, yeah, thanks. It was definitely, uh, it seemed like we were going out on a limb a little bit for us. The DIY element of it was pretty satisfying. It was a lot of work for Jack. But uh, When we were first talking about it, like Trump wins and we're like, okay, what are we going to do? We got to do a post-apocalyptic rock opera about this time. Because we had a whole other plan for what our, our next album was going to be. We had to scrap that because everything seems irrelevant when the world is about to end. So we wrote that first song, Hope. And it, it, it wasn't clear yet what we were going to do with this rock opera. You know, are we going to make a movie? And then we decided pretty early on, no, let's do an animated series because that way we don't actually have to film all of this impossible shit. <laughs> Because it would have been like a $200 million budgeted uh, Roland Emmerich disaster movie yeah. to do it right. So, And also, we're getting older and we don't really like the way we look on film. So it's like, let's do a cartoon yeah, and we look however the hell we want. I'm thinking more Michael Bay, frankly, but okay, sure. Roland Emmerich, and that's we're all right. We're like, hey, 
this is going to be huge. Yeah. Obviously, HBO is going to want it. So we'll give them first dibs since we have history with them. Yeah. And they were like, uh, yeah, hard pass. Yeah. And they were like, good. We didn't want to do it with you anyway. You're yesterday's news. Take it over to Netflix. Yo, Netflixy, we've got a little something hot off the griddle. Pass. And then we got the, the message pretty quickly that no one wanted to make our rated X political rock opera. Oh, that's the part I forgot, the rated X part. It's also a little not safe for work, this thing, right? That's the thing. Yeah. yeah. So our dreams of having like the Matt Groening art team come in and do all of the work for us went out the window. And Cage was like a huge fan of my doodles. Yeah, I've always been a fan of the doodles. Always very funny uh, doodler. And I'm like, I think this is telling the story. It's so funny the way it is. Maybe we don't need it. I didn't even want any color. I wanted it to be total, just primitive, just sketch drawings, but even more I lost. DIY. So yeah, we were like, okay, I think this works. works. We're not gonna let this stop us. We're gonna we're gonna make it but it's going to be way cheaper than we had anticipated. I keep thinking like and, the, when you mentioned the Matt Groening animation team coming in, I know people who know Matt Groening from obviously from the Simpsons and Futurama, whatever. The original Matt Groening thing is you guys, I'm sure know life in hell, which is really my favorite. Oh yeah. The, oh, original, God, the greatest. That, greatest. But that, this has a little more of a life in hell quality. The LA Weekly. It, you know, Every with week. yes. Akbar and Jeff. Yeah. Akbar and Jeff and, and Binky and yeah, Bongo. Yeah. Wow. And like, you know, those, oh, yeah. that's like the bear. That's like a very simple piece of animation. That's a little bit more yeah. like what this looks like. It's, but, but. The but, LA but, Weekly Matt Groening totally. that we all knew and loved yes. back in the mm. day. We're dropping these cultural uh, references here that no one like it's like no that's one. like a Smothers Brothers reference right there. So the Matt Groening <laughs> life in hell. Like what? So are you guys happy? Are you guys happy with how the like? So as I said a second ago, you guys made the videos, you put them on YouTube, you strung them together. It's like an hour long movie now, right? The post-apocalyptic yeah. movie. Mm-hmm. And you guys mm-hmm. nicely sent me the the graphic novel, which I have not yet fully immersed myself in it, but it looks fucking cool. That came out just a couple months ago, right? Yes. And also, if you notice. When you do crack it open, yeah. on the first page, it tells you how to go to TenaciousD.com and, and click the link so you can listen along while you read it. Mm-hmm, it's like a, mm-hmm. a children's picture book in that way. And it plays the songs along with the, the pictures that you're, you're looking at. But yeah, it was a lot of work, dude. <laughs> I spent literally hundreds of hours drawing pictures, maybe thousands. Maybe 10,000 hours. See, but, the pictures get better as the show progresses. It was... Uh... And we, we did it episodic, uh, similar to, I, I imagine, the way Cervantes did uh, Don Quixote. Yes. Well, you <laughs> guys are a little like... Chapter. You guys Very are a little similar. Don Quixote, right? That's the other thing about Kyle and That's Jack. True. You guys have a little bit yeah. of a Don Quixote kind of... Uh, one mm-hmm. of you guys is the donkey. I'm not sure which. Yes. <laughs> one of you guys... <laughs> no. No. John Opanza? There's... Yeah. There is that element of us chasing uh, dragons that are actually just windmills. Uh, the self-proclaimed greatest band in the world. We have, we do have a little Don Quixote in our sauce. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I guess but, my, I, I guess my question before like we leave this topic and take a little break. My last question about this is like, okay, so post-apocalypto, two years, you know, multimedia extravaganza, obviously. Amazon, Hulu, HBO, Netflix, all cursing themselves now that they've seen what a kind of are they? culture dominating are they though, phenomenon Trump? post-apocalypto has become. I think they are. Um, do, you know, now Trump gets beat, right? So do we yeah. feel like the apocalyptic moment is now past? I mean, or, or do we feel like there's still with COVID? We'll talk about this more, but do you guys kind of think, man, this was great for the last couple of years of the Trump era, but now we're headed into brighter days? Or do you think that the world's because of COVID and other things still going to be kind of on edge and receptive to this kind of message? 
days we're not change. done yet we're not we're still we're on the, the rigs edge here we got iran he wants to go there we got all kinds of weird plans because once again we're in the same situation trump looks like a fucking clown let's all laugh because he's a lame duck there's never been a lamer duck but in the meantime he continues to march on with his fucking devious plan not over till he's gone with his nuclear football and then, you know the no. sad thing is no. even after he's gone he's not gone not well, take his passport. That's what I say. Get that passport. We're not going to be done with Trump, isn't there? Seventy million people that that, that buy into it. And I don't know how many, what percentage of those people are queuing on us. Still freak but you that's out. That's a dangerous group for a lot of people here. Is like every a lot of people very happy Joe Biden won. A lot of people very happy that he's going to end up getting eighty million votes. But Trump, you know, still got. 73 million, 74 million. He got Wasn't more. It, it would have been the second most ever. And the main thing, he also got like a 10 million more than he got last time. Even after watching that this was, guy yeah. with his yeah. corruption and his stupidity and his incompetence, there's still more people voted for him than they than did four years ago. It's the eternal head scratcher of like, why? When it seems so apparent to so many of us. I know. You say the numbers do speak for themselves. So we could keep on doing post-apocalypto for another 40 years. Unfortunately, probably because, you know, the politics of blame and hatred, they're as strong as they've ever been. So the growth industry, I'd like to move on to the next album, but we're going to have to see how our how work is not done. Our work is done. <laughs> All right. This is a good time to take a break and pay some more bills with the podcast. Uh, you're listening to Hell and High Water with Jack Black and Kyle Gass. Tenacious D. God damn it. I've wanted to do this podcast for really forever. It's part of the reason I actually launched Hell and High Water was because I thought there was a chance that we could get Tenacious D to come on. And so it here did. we are. Mission oh. accomplished. All right, Man. let's sell some soap here. We'll be right back. Yeah. It's time to be a hero. A hero with a mask. Not this kind. This kind. So that is a, a little Jack Black doing a viral mask public service announcement, I guess. Uh, Jack, that's out on, on every social platform. And again, watched by a bajillion people. I will say there are three characters in this. If you haven't seen it, you got to go look at Jack's Instagram. And it's like really part two, because at the beginning of the COVID quarantine, Jack did a shirtless dance that took TikTok by storm. And then this thing came out a little later, also on TikTok and, and again, available on Instagram and other social platforms. And I'll say in both of them, there are two important characters. One is Jack Black and the second is Jack Black's belly. Um, and then also a very itty bitty like Speedo in both cases, like not a lot of uh, not a lot of coverage in terms of the short pants that you're wearing. And then the, the mask is obviously a huge part of the of the mask PSA. So I ask you an itty bitty Speedo covering of <laughs> significant mm -hmm. package. Yeah, I'll leave that to everyone's imagination and whether I don't know what to say about it, except I do want to ask you about it, though, because we all want to talk about COVID here in this last part of the podcast. I mean, those are both artifacts of the COVID quarantine era, you know, where a lot of artists and celebrities of your ilk have taken to these social media platforms and have done things that have gone wildly viral in video. And those two things I just mentioned, the TikTok videos, the first, the quarantine dance, and then the mask PSA went wildly viral. So like what inspired you to decide to take off most of your clothes and film yourself 
for the purposes of the TikTok. You know, there's an element of just public service announcement and how can you make that fun? And weirdly, an element of politics. There shouldn't be any politics involved, but I guess that's my bleeding heart, left-wing liberal side coming out. But I'd be lying if I didn't say there was a a little bit of uh, desperation for attention. That's I thought. (laughs) Celebrate attention disorder? (laughs) I got a little bit of a disorder. It's it's part of why we do what we do. If we see an opportunity to resonate on any platform, why wouldn't you jump at it? And if you can make a good cause at the same time, then all the better. No, I was just going to say, yeah, that we're anal expulsive as opposed to anal retentive. Whereas we want to <laughs> show our shit, everybody, not keep it in. I don't think I've ever heard that before. And I think oh, yeah, I'd no, rather so, not have to hear it again. <laughs> um, but talk, just, I want to hear what you guys, this is one of the things that most interested me when we went into quarantine, right? When we went into lockdown back last March was everything stopped, right? In the creative fields, whether it's television, movies, music, like you guys were planning to do a big tour this fall. You guys are going to be out with Tenacious D. You guys are going to tour around and go from Iowa and, and you know, spend the fall touring and, and trying to help the, the cause of beating Trump. And all that got shut down. In some ways, Time Warp is kind of a, a result of the fact that you couldn't tour, right? You couldn't go out and play live gigs. So I really just want to throw it open to you guys. What has it been like being artists, you know, as musicians with the band, but also Jack, you in television and film, like what's it been like dealing with the the restrictions that COVID has imposed on your industries and your creativity and your capacity to earn money and, and, and do the shit you love? I mean, it seems like this has been a pretty fucking hard time for a lot of people in the creative fields. Well, I mean, obviously all the filming has been on hold. I haven't done anything, but strangely I've enjoyed the time at home with the family and I'm already kind of in my golden celebrity bubble anyway so it's not actually that big a change because I always hide in here yeah yeah I the strangely it hasn't been that much different except for the lack of touring but it has been a challenge and a good one though to kind of stay creative and you know nothing keeps you from writing and nothing keeps you from playing in fairness, though, Cage, we do our best writing when we're together over at the rehearsal space, and we haven't been able to jam together because mainly because I'm too paranoid. Cage I was going like, to say, apparently I look like a germ. Not, to- have you guys not seen each other? Have you guys not been in each other's physical presence since the start uh, of the COVID? I came over to Kyle's house for his birthday. Jack dropped a Cadillac mm-hmm. off. I, I gave Kyle a Cadillac, a pandemic Cadillac. That's what these Elvis types do. you know. But no, it, in fairness, uh, he was turning 60. It was a big one, and I wanted to do something special for Kyle, so I went over to his house with a 1960, I've got OCD, Cadillac S-Series, and I dropped the keys on him just to look at the look on his fucking face when he just creamed his jeans. I was going to ask you to describe the look on his face, but you went right to something else. (laughs) I was hoping for man tears, but at least there was a little... I was moved. I I immediately (laughs) wrote a song about it within days. It was a great song, and you posted it on your socials, and I appreciated I, I it. I did, thank you. Well, that's a pretty good oh, gift, man. Jack Black. Black. Well, he got me Cadillac. Sounded like a Beatles jam, honestly. I had that flavor. Can you, wait, sing, sing that way. I want to hear that again. Sing a little bit of that song. Go oh, ahead, Jack Black. Well, he got me Cadillac. Now I don't think I'm going back anymore. No. 
Oh my God, that's so great. You got to see him though, singing that and playing guitar on the back of on his the, convertible, convertible Cadillac as it drives by. That's what With the advent of Instagram, there's no, never a reason not to be creative. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. yeah. Come on. Well, that's the thing. So it's interesting because I hear like, for example, my friend Riza, who did the, the, the theme music for this podcast, he says that like the COVID's been great for him creatively. He's like, I've been working on breaks. I've been working on beats. I've had more time to focus on the production side than I've had in a really long time. And, and he's like, I've been more productive in the last six, nine months than I've been for years. So I, I, I think a lot of people obviously are feel hindered by this. And a lot of people who do live performance and live production are obviously held back. And there's a lot of television things that, you know, we somehow managed to get the circus made, but there's a ton of scripted shows that I love, like billions my friends work on and they can't figure out how the COVID thing and how to get it done. But I do think for some people, it's kind of a fertile period of focus, like writers and, and others who don't have to be engaged in the large collaborative enterprise of like making a movie or making a television show. But if you can just do your work at home on your own, yeah. whether it's writing something or working on, on production or whatever, it seems like some people are thriving in this environment too. I totally agree. It's forced a lot of people into some kind of extra creative mode, just having to be by themselves. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in 2021. It could be a, a a real renaissance there could be some great 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 music coming out I'm, I'm looking forward to that i wish i could say i was like rizzo though and uh i've been writing some of the best music of my life that's <laughs> not really the case well I, some of the best covers of our lives we have had some fun and we have we have had some some cool we were pretty lucky and uh trying to think of a great jam to help rock the vote for georgia i mean we could just keep on pushing time warp but it feels like georgia should have something special and it's so weird how this one tiny little part of the world is gonna have so much attention on it because oh, it's so consequential not just for america for the world yes kyle said something the other day to me he said should we do something for georgia should we do something for georgia yeah. are you in i'm like i'm i do want to ask you this though jack about tiktok right yeah. i mean that's a new platform for you right yeah kyle made a point earlier about how like you know tenacious d has a pre as a presence in the world you have a presence in the world that's adjacent to it and, and very large, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you, you've been a pretty big exhibitionist for a pretty long time, but these platforms seem like they're kind of made for you. Yeah, you I know. know. It's weird because- TikTok feels very Jack Black friendly. I know, because I have a super short attention span. So sort of short attention span theater just fits right in with my brand in a way. Got a little ADHD in my sauce. I got a little OCD in my soup. So working in, in 15 second chunks, I can party with that all day. <laughs> uh, it has presented a strange opportunity to connect with a larger audience, and it's been kind of fun. Also, I will say the other thing for you is something that came through in the Time Warp video, but that's true of these TikTok videos that a lot of people comment to me about. I'll say this in the best and most straightforward way I can. People like they really admire your body positivity. Mm. You don't give a shit. You're like, I'm just like, well, there's no you're, vanity you're in comedy, less, John. No, I, I again, I, I, I appreciate it. I, and I, I get a lot of people have a lot of positive feedback about it. It's like, you know, like that dude just does not care. There's no he's not trying to conform to some particular stereotype of what a celebrity should look like. He doesn't give a shit. He's having fun and is, you know, unabashed about being willing to get pretty close to naked in some of these spaces. It's amazing how big a difference it is though, a tight red Speedo. It's only like an ounce of material between that and the full Monty. I actually am very aware of my body. I'm self-conscious and insecure about it. I think a part of that exhibitionism is like a, a form of therapy. Like I'm trying to get over something. Like if I, yeah. if I jump into the deep end of the kind of an armor of the pool, yeah. maybe I'll get over my own body issues. 
but I also am aware of the fact that that shock value that's going to create, because in a way we're in the business of humiliation. And if you're willing to go there, you can have an impact. <laughs> but, um, what do you think, Cage? What, what is it with the body? The body. Uh... Well, it's been tough for me because Jack and I have always competed. We've always kind of had weight issues and kind of tried to lose it. And, and then Jack came into full self-acceptance mode and it kind of put me back on my heels. So now I have to accept too, I suppose. I know, but well, Kyle, you, you've actually been winning the battle of the bulge. But now with the news, there is no battle anymore. Now we right, there accept ourselves. There's still There's no battle. fat shaming anymore. We can't do it. Well, here's the thing, though. I have, I have, you uh, Bill you know, Maher. exposed myself, and it's been like, oh, isn't he brave because he's a plus size model in this uh, body centric world? Everyone wants, wants to have a perfect body, but but the truth is, I've been working out like a madman. I've been swimming more laps than I ever have. So underneath this layer of cushion, there's a lot of muscles. Well, you know, they, I'm actually proud of my weird body because even though I'm pretty hefty, I also have some flexibility and some, some musculature. Well, you can see that in the TikTok video when you hurl yourself into the pool. Like there's a, it's a, it's, you know, there's a lot of trajectory. You were flying out there like a weak man could not mm. fling himself that far into the pool. There's strength on Have display. Have you seen there, the Russian dancing that Jack can? Oh, yes, I've seen that too. That is, that's that also is, impressive. That's, yes, that's insane. You know, I have to say though, sometimes I see people that are on the heavier side and I, I find them very attractive. And then if I see them lose a lot of weight, sometimes I'll be like, well, good yeah. for them, but I kind of miss the... Jack maybe told me to stop losing weight because it was diminishing returns. Well, and I think Kyle's perfect weight is around 216. Lean and mean in 216. And Cage is like, no, dude, I want to get back to my high school weight, 186. I'm like, I don't think that's it, bro. I'm clinically oh, guys, obese, for God's sake. You, you think that's, you guys you both look fucking perfect to me. I swear to God, you both look perfect to Thanks, me. John. Perfect. Thank you. Right Thank now. you, John. And you know what I don't appreciate? And I'm a, it's weird because I am a fan of his. This dude, Real Time with Bill Maher. I think he's real. <laughs> I think he's brilliant. I think, you know, he makes great points. Uh... I, I think he's actually a better orator than a comedian. I don't find him particularly hilarious, but I do get blown away on, on the reg by his points that he makes. And he thinks outside the box and he says things that you're not supposed to say. And I appreciate that. But uh oh, here comes a but he talks about fat people. It makes my blood boil. It's a kind of racism. You can't call it racism, but it comes from the same place. Well, it's like, like a, a character it's issue. Like homophobia. It's a character it's, issue. It's not really actually it's not like racism or homophobia because if you have an eating disorder and you can't stop eating, it's more like alcoholism. And you wouldn't go on an addiction. You wouldn't go shaming someone for a disease or for something. And it's like, fuck you, man. <laughs> it, actually, I, I get pretty passionate about it. When he, I, I turn off the show and I, I do love the show from time to time, but I have, I have to had to phase him out because of his fat shaming. Mm. You know what I'm talking about, John? Are you aware of his deal? I have uh, been on that show on on many occasions, and have, they've always treated me very well, but I have noted the thing that you were talking about. And it's I'm, rough. I'm not a big fan of it. Because people are struggling yeah. out there, and he's got this cockiness like they're lazy. Be more like me, date supermodels, and be, a, you know, 
an asshole. I don't know. No, yeah, it's it's character, it's character, lack of character. Sorry, I should probably <laughs> change subjects because. Um, <laughs> I like that. Be like me. No, I I, I like this. I like this. Com- I like this. I, I got like I said. I it's spicy. I mean, it's not, I'm not kidding when I say that a lot of people who wrote, who texted or reached out around the time work thing and, and people just loved it. And, and, you know, Jack, you get, you know, you get shirtless in that thing. And it just, it's just, I find, you know, people, I don't know if it's exactly brave. That's not really the word that it's just that people are like, you know, it's like the dude's really comfortable in his own skin. That's fucking cool. That's what I, that was the general positivity around it that I heard a lot of people commenting on. And, and, and that was before I had really totally grokked these uh, TikTok videos. And I'm like, well, you know, if you want to see something real, if you want to see him really embracing it, take a look at this thing. Cause he's thrown himself into the pool in slow motion in midair. That's a, you know, there's a degree of body comfort uh, to doing that. I, but I, I, I would never, I'm not comfortable enough with my body to do that on, on TikTok. So more, more power to you. Um, I just want to end here. Cause I want to come to, to something that's going to be, this is not a tenacious D question. And I apologize because it's something I raised earlier and I got to come back to it. Oh, you're... I could talk for, two days about high fidelity about that movie. As I said, 2000 was a year you guys signed with Epic and you had high fidelity come out. High fidelity is kind of the first big breakthrough part for you, right? Is for that sure. fair for your career? Right. Um, and I love that movie, man. I love, I, I said, I knew Nick Hornby when he wrote fever pitch and high fidelity. I lived in London at the time and I, I met him and I love those books and they were great. And then the movie came out and I thought, man, they're going to fuck this up by Americanizing it, but they didn't. And it was great. And you know, everyone in it's just like one of my favorite movies. It's one of those, I, they should, Bill Simmons should have me come on the rewatchables. Cause it's one of those movies I've probably seen a hundred times, you know? And I, it was the first time I think you were really in my consciousness playing Barry in that movie. So I would love to just hear you talk a little bit about being in it and hear both of you guys talk about the conceit of that thing. As we bring this into a close, which is like your top five records, which of course is the record label that Cusack announces he's starting. And you guys do a lot of list making in the record shop in that movie. Uh, but Jack, just tell me a little bit about high fidelity and what it meant to you and in your life and career. So me and Kyle were doing tenacious D and it was getting pretty intense around 98, 99. And, uh, it was heating up. So John Cusack, who wrote and starred in High Fidelity, offered me that role. He was like, hey, you know, Stephen Frears is directing it and we want you to play Barry. And I read it and my first instinct was like, oh, I don't think I want to do it because it's about rock and roll and it's about music. And I got this thing going with Tenacious D where I actually am a musician and I actually am in that world. And and to make a movie like you wouldn't want to see some musician that you love going and making a movie acting like a musician. I I felt like in a weird way it would diminish that other part. But at the end of the day, I was like, I love Stephen Frears and I love John Cusack and and I'm going to take the plunge, even though I'm afraid of, of what it might do to Tenacious D. And I'm glad I did because it was a, you know, a career milestone for me and opened up a lot of opportunities and changed my life. But yeah, there was a lot of trepidation going into it. After that, I really checked in when I was afraid to do something. I was like, wait a second, am I afraid for good reasons or is it, am I just missing an opportunity? Well, you made the right choice there. First of all, the movie is fucking great. And I just think for music fans, I think that's the thing is that, you know, it's a movie that like in the same way, I'm going to say something that will only make sense to you if you're a baseball fan, but the movie Bull Durham is like the baseball fans baseball movie, right? It's not about the details, although the details are right, but it's just like, 
it gets in this existential way. It gets like what baseball, the appeal of baseball to people who love baseball. Just the whole movie is structured in a way that feels like someone who's a baseball fan who loves baseball, who's like made a baseball movie. And that's not true of all baseball movies. High Fidelity is like a music movie for people who are music fans. It captured that thing that Nick Hornby captured in the book, which is like what it's like to be obsessed with music, what it's like to be someone who hangs out in a record shop, what it's like to be someone who's constantly making lists in their head all the time about what their top five Desert Island discs are, or what the top five songs you play at your funeral or whatever it is. Like that's a very like it's getting the gestalt of being a music fan. And I think like being in a movie like that, if you were someone who had a musical aspiration is actually good for you, right? It's because it's very much of the spirit. It doesn't feel like a, an outsider's view of music. It feels like a fan's movie that understands fandom and understands like what musical obsession and compulsion is all about. And also just a kind of well-executed film. It's like really fun. Music fans love that movie, right? Yeah. And so I can imagine the trepidation, but I'm glad you ended up making it. And I do ask you, as you sit here now, what's your, let's do your top five, right? There's a lot of different kinds of top fives you can do, but this is a good moment. Top five records for celebrating the end of the Trump era. Jack Black. Oh, man. You know, the song that came to mind for me, and I posted like a clip of it, was from The Wiz. Can you feel a brand new day? With incredible performances by Diana Ross and a young Michael Jackson. Pre off the wall. So he's like, just popping and you know hair the musical home for the breeze and home for the buzzing bees so there's another one i just want celebration and like freedom from tyranny music those two are the only ones that are springing to Kyle, mind. Go ahead. you can throw you we'll make a good joint list here funeral for a friend came to mind i don't know why it just is that a fam, 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 fam. That's Tears of a Clown. What funeral for a friend? How's that go? Yeah. That's a jam. A whole side. Yeah. What a great rip snorters where it's like, it's time to party and celebrate. Because... It's sort of a, a funny thumb in your nose at his end run. Uh, the YMCA oh, song comes to funny. mind. You got to throw that out. Yes, that was How YMCA. That's great good. victory lap songs where you're kind of rubbing their nose in it. It, it feels yeah. like yeah. a guilty pleasure. So that's four. What's our last one, Cage? Back in the USSR. No. Come on. Oh, come on, cynical. Don't be so of? cynical. The guy's leaving. I'm, I'm just going to oh. put Time Warp on the list. Get, you guys, the, the, the Tenacious D cover of Time Warp, which will be remembered as the song of the fall of 2020 by all right-thinking, patriotic, God-fearing, flag-loving Americans. People will be like, what do I think of when I think about the fall of 2020? I think about fucking Time Warp. I think about rocking out to that thing. I think about the way that Kyle hit that second verse with the little special effects with the red eyes on the video. That was nice. Hey, I mean, you guys somehow managed to get uh, Halloween and cross-dressing and anti-Trump all into one amazingly compelling package. And it's sort of like post-apocalypto. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> Just in that, you know, it's like the South Park thing and the apocalyptic overtones and the rock and roll. And it's a uh, video and it's a album and it's a graphic novel. It's like, you know, it makes me think about my dad who used to use this term. He would uh, refer to something as a blivet 
And I would be like, what's, you know, what's that? And he would say, it's a military term and it means 10 pounds of shit in a five pound bag. And he meant it uh, in the best possible way. I mean, where uh, 10 pounds of shit in a five pound bag meant, you know, my cup overfloweth <laughs> to some extent. That's how I feel about post-apocalypto. And it is definitely the way I feel about time warp, but in the best possible list, way. By the way. I do too. We're going to publish that pot, top five list and we're going to make a playlist uh, out of it and put it on Spotify and people will be like, oh man, that is cool. You guys, thank you for doing this. Thank you, you were like a fucking delight. I honestly could sit here with you guys all day long. Hey, after like this whole thing, we'll hang out. How are you saying? <laughs> love it thank you john great, great good to, to see you on. good to see you boys let's do, let's do it again soon. see you man thanks for having us and a big thank you to tenacious d for being with us here on the final episode of the year of hell and high water hell and high water is a podcast from the recount and iHeartRadio. thanks again to jack black and kyle gas for being here with us if you like this episode and who wouldn't please subscribe to the podcast and leave a fabulous, nice, wonderful, delightful, ecstatic rating for us in the Apple Podcast app. Helps people find out what we're doing over here. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handled the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And the aforementioned Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer.